Hey folks, this is Ian Foster, and this is If and When, a podcast where I talk to other creators about how and why they do their thing. To start, I'm talking to colleagues, friends, and veterans of the arts community at home here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. These are not so much traditional interviews as they're a chat over coffee or something a little stronger. So come sit in and have a listen. Well, hello again, folks. Thank you for tuning back in to hear part two of my conversation with Mary Walsh. If you missed part one, go back one episode in your app and you'll hear it. And we pick up right where we left off after we took our brief intermission in in the last episode. So it'll feel like you were really there. Nancy and I are currently on tour with our Christmas record. I would love for you to come out to a show. We're, we're nearing the end of the shows now, so go to ianfoster.ca and you can see where we are and hopefully we can share in this Christmas season with you. And I would like to say another few words. I said most of what I wanted to say in last week's episode, but this is the final episode of If and When for season one, which ends 2019. It started... For me, at the beginning of 2019, in terms of recording episodes, so we're going to take a brief hiatus to collect some more episodes that we can then release over time, because this is obviously a very part-time job for me. I am a full-time musician. I'm on the road uh, for about two months um, in the early spring of 2020, so I want to make sure I can keep releasing these episodes while that happens and do so consistently. So we're going to take a brief break. But... I want to say again, a special thank you to everyone who has been tuning in to these. It really does mean a lot. I've had some great conversations out in the real world about this podcast as a result of people taking this into their their earbuds when they do some work around the house or in the car. It's super cool. That's how I feel about podcasts. It's the golden rule for me. It's very cool that this has been awesome for somebody else. So we'll be back for season two in a couple of months time. You can follow me on social media, of course, to get all the updates about that. I also have a newsletter. I actually never mention my newsletter. I don't know why. If you go to ianfoster.ca, there's a sign up there on the front page. If you scroll down, sign up for that. That would be cool. And then you'll get it by email instead of the relentless social media feed that is Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, Here we go. Part two of my conversation with Mary Walsh, live at the rooms. And we're back for part two. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. That's good. They Um, always say how necessary it is to get a good night's sleep. But when you get to be a certain age, I don't know if your bladder just wears out or something, every two hours you have to get up and pee, which is really, I'm so pissed off about that. Because how can I get a good night's sleep? Good pun. I'll just have to get a catheter, I guess. (laughs) Uh, Well, we were talking about your book. uh, Yes. And... um, you know, as, as sort it of, It was I a guess, Canadian bestseller. I mean, I don't mean to, you know what I mean. Now, a Canadian bestseller is not massive. No, we're going to talk about... But still, it was a Canadian bestseller. We're going to talk in detail about that Giller yeah. artist that you're mad at. Oh, no, I am not uh, mad at them. I, I'm teasing. I'm really happy, but I was just going, hmm, why not me? Everyone, yeah. She got on it, why not me? <laughs> totally. I don't think there's any artist who's never felt no, that no. feeling, ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as, as, I guess, a comparison for me, uh, you know... Uh, Music is my full-time job, and this is my 
This is my side thing that I'm doing. And it feels completely different in one way. But there are obvious, like, sort of nuts and bolts similarities. I mean, now this is the first live episode I've ever done. But it's me, you know, using microphones and I guess in this case being <laughs> on a stage. And there's yep. sort of those things that are similar. I'm curious for you writing the book after all these years. Did it feel, I mean, because the podcast still feels like uh, new territory for me completely, even right. though there are those similarities. Do you, do you know what I mean? So, I like, do, I do. When, you, when you sat down to write, did it feel feel like I'm fully in the unknown or, or were there elements of writing that were similar? Well, you know, the, uh, I think I forgot to say when I was talking about my brother that that's why I wanted to do Dakey Dunn, who seems like a crass kind of, you know, uh, fella and at the same time is insightful, right? Into all kinds of things that he sees through things. That's, but so when I sat down to write, I wanted to write this story, I wasn't quite sure. I was going to write a coming of age story first. Then I started to write the coming of age story. And I don't know if you know that person, Roz Chass. She writes, uh, she, she does cartoons. And she did the, uh, the, the life of a reader. And like, you know, she, she said, you know, we start off first reading mysteries like Nancy Drew and Trixie Belden. And then we move on to uh, more heady fare like, uh, you know, oh, I don't know, uh, uh, you know, the Brothers Karamazov or something like that. And then, you know, we're in our 30s and 40s and we do that. And then when we get about 50, we start to read mystery books again. But we cover them over with like uh, the cover of Lolita. We're kind of ashamed that we're back. But then she said, when we turn 60, then we're Right out there with uh, you know the uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo the <laughs> the mystery books and so I found myself right back there right. for sure because I hadn't been reading and but now I read them all the time not exclusively but I really I really enjoy them and when and I when I was writing the book I thought hmm I thought well I I would like there to be a murder mystery and then the person Maureen is hapless to a certain extent, unloved and unlovable in many ways. And, and, uh, and not like, you know, most books where there's a mystery solved, most people who solve the mystery, they've got certain powers, you know. Well, with Marvel Comics, of course, they have superpowers, and you're always thinking, oh, what's going to happen, I wonder? Will he use his superpower to solve this? <laughs> Oh my God, I cannot believe that. We still have to keep watching them. But anyway, uh, there you go. Um, uh, but but I, I, um, it's funny, isn't it, when you think of all the people who helped you over the years. But I, uh, I was saying, Maureen doesn't have any power. She has nothing. Uh, I, and usually, like I say, when I'm writing, I'm... I'm calling on my own experiences to a certain extent and then fictionalizing them. And so my friend Sherry White, uh, who's a writer, uh, said, well, you're really nosy. Maybe she could be nosy. And I went, oh, yeah, like <laughs> that, that would be good because you know the way that you're always... Well, I was always opening other people's mail and then having to destroy it after. Never mind. That, that's a federal offense, but I think I've passed that, the time that I could be charged with that now. Because after it was opened, of course, you'd go, oh, my Jesus, what am I going to do with it now? Um, tear it up into tiny pieces. Burn it, obviously. Uh, what can I do? Something bad happened. Run away. Good, Yes. Uh, it's taken me a long time to grow up, I have to say. But uh, So Maureen is kind of like that, like she opens other people's mails and goes through things right. and does those sorts of things. And that helped immensely. But um, writing the book, because I'd been writing screenplays, and I've written a number of screenplays, and screenplays are like, they're so rigid. They're like a poem in that they have a 
so many lines and there's only so much you're allowed to do. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They have a formula and you have to follow that formula and you can't just like Charles Dickens, like suddenly go down the road of the lawyer who looks after Pip and then you meet his father and they go down that road and it's all fun. Mm-hmm. But writing the book, I realized I could do that. And it was so much fun. Like coming out of having just written the screenplay, uh, a screenplay, uh, actually it came out of a screenplay that I wrote called Marg the Movie. Mm. That was what we brought to, to and, and again, the... You know, you you can't talk a lot. You can't say a lot. You you gotta things have got to move. You've got to open with something. Things have got to be different by the end of the of the scene. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's got to be action and movement and stuff like that. Whereas when you're writing a book, you can you know people are settled in. You can if as long as you can keep people's interest, you can take them down that road where you know uh, Pip meets his lawyer's clerks father you know what I mean mm-hmm. and uh, which I've always enjoyed and so uh, to me writing the book uh, was a was a very joyful experience I didn't want to finish it of course and and then I was just saying to my cousin here that many times I would just go I would just cry and go well I can't do this the reason I didn't do this before is because I don't know how to do it and I don't you know but I had because I don't use the computer that much I would write I wrote by hand oh really I, I write right and then I would get I would read it out to uh, Monique uh, uh, Tobin, who was my assistant, working as my assistant then when I was writing the screenplays and stuff, and to Jamie Pitt, who was my assistant after. And I would judge things, like I would write them, and then I'd read them out so they could put them in the computer, and I would judge how it was going by the look on Monique's face, right? Like I would think, hmm, Monique doesn't really like that. Like Monique is very quiet, Very, she would never say, unless it's about milk, she's really against 2% milk. but And then she'll speak out quite strongly about that, but anything else, no. Right. So, But I'd see her face go kind of thing. I think, does Monique think this is no good or is it you know, just a piece of undigested potato? Uh, but um, So that helped a lot, you know, like uh, I would go, I would re-look at, and so I would often rewrite as I was reading it out. And I, was this the screenplay or the actual novel at this the, point? The actual were, novel okay, at this point. Yeah, out, yeah, 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 yeah. So because the screenplay, actually only about two pages of it ever got in, but it was the screenplay, uh, again, help from another... Emile Goudreau, who directed me in um, uh, Mambo Italiano, uh, and who came in when I did my first directing, uh, uh, my first film direction uh, with a movie called Young Trevies Made Away With, the only movie to ever get no stars in the Globe and Mail. I'm very <laughs> proud of that. Uh, but anyway, Emil came in to help me, when I, because I was also in the movie, and uh, he directed me. But anyway, Emil said... When you're writing the movie, just write the past life of this person. Just write, write, write a whole novel about this person. So I wrote 200 pages about Marg, and that's what we gave to Harper Collins. And then I think I used about two pages, like getting knocked up in Montreal. Uh, that happened to Maureen. That happened to Marg, and basically that was the only pages that I used from the 200 pages. Mm-hmm. Um, I never did get knocked up. People go, is, is, is this an autobiographical? I went, well, I never did get knocked up, uh, which I now regret. Uh, but poor old Maureen got knocked up in Montreal. I never did, also, I never did get to um, um, 
uh, expo, expo because yeah. uh, Maureen auditions for Sister Mary Catherine and gets in the altos mm-hmm. and never gets thrown out. I was out within four hours. Sister Mary Catherine was going, something is off in the altos. She push her wimple back and listen. And I was just out the door right away. So I never got to go to <laughs> expo, but Maureen did get to go, uh, my character. And I did or did not try to kill somebody once, but you know, I, I'm not sure. Is there a time limit on murder? Anyway. Um, <laughs> The um, I was going. The follow up to all this was going to be, "How are you not in jail?" And here's why: <laughs> because I asked you how you wrote this novel, and you've confessed to at least one federal crime. <laughs> that's right. That's so right. Far. That's right. But but like I said, there's a, a limit. Uh, 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 there is a what's it called? The statute of limitations. Statute yeah, of you're, limitations. You're good. Just Actually, not a, on a, murder. A friend of not mine on is mur- here. He's a lawyer, so we'll yeah, ask yeah. Him statute after of limitations on that kind of interfering with other people's mail. Yeah. Who hasn't? God. <laughs> Uh, but now this book, which kind of, you know, was an, a, a Canadian bestseller, and uh, but now we're thinking of doing something with it, like the, do you know that series called The Dairy Girls? Mm-hmm. Half Hour, two absolutely unbearable uh, actresses in it who just drive you crazy, you can't, but the actual show itself is quite funny, mm-hmm. and it's uh, young, uh, young women growing up in Derry, going to Catholic school, uh, while the troubles are on in in Belfast, mm-hmm. but actually in Derry, <laughs> that's right. why they call it Derry Girls as opposed to Belfast Girls. Uh, but anyway, so we're thinking of doing, uh, you know, so we're working on uh, doing a, a modification of of the book. So I think that's quite exciting. I'm cool. excited about that. Yeah, yeah. congrats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but what what question did you ask me? <laughs> <laughs> It was about writing the book, which you definitely have yeah. answered, yeah, as yeah, well yeah. as the federal crimes and stuff. Yeah. Um, no, that's great. Um, let, I want to talk about this a little bit. You've been in comedy uh, pre-internet and post-internet, and like everything post-internet, it has changed. I mean, I could speak forever on the music side of what that means for musicians now that we have yeah. streaming and the disposability of music and all that stuff. I'm really curious your take on how comedy has changed post-internet. Yeah, you know, I don't know. People are always complaining and saying, you know, oh my God, people aren't allowed to say. You're allowed to say in the same way you were ever allowed to say things. And if they upset people, then they upset people. You just upset a wider group of people than you did before. I uh, I remember, again, my friend Jamie Pitt, uh, who's a young woman who was my assistant for a while, uh, but... I used to use the word, I used to bandy about the word retarded a lot. You know, it just seemed, you know, uh, it, it just means slow, you know. And uh, and she basically beat me out of it uh, when I realized that I actually was hurting people. Mm. But just my use of the word was actually hurting people. And I thought, well, why would I do that? Why would I want to hurt someone just because I always said retarded from the time I was, you know, started walking or talking or mm-hmm. quite retardedly. Uh, no, sorry, uh, not a joke. But 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 so I think that people make a decision about what they say in comedy as they always did make a decision. You can't, like, you know, George Carlin did those seven words you can't say on TV. Yeah. You know, like, you know, I've been writing on TV for a long time, so I haven't been uh, doing blue material or using uh, foul language, though I use a lot of it in my real life. My father is a sailor. I'm allowed to. It's part of my culture. Uh, but um, the um, but, but but so they're always I I 
I think that what happens, what happened to me is when Stephen Harper was running the second time, when he wore that bl fluffy blue vest and had the pictures of him with the kittens, as if that was the kind of guy he was, uh, I remember doing some margs on my own and putting them on Facebook. I was just, I, I, I couldn't believe the response I got. It was just the, the great conservative hate machine uh, went into gear and, you know, they called me a whore and they talked about my son and they... It was just terrifying, mm. and this was years ago, and I really backed off. I backed off doing that kind of, I, I had thought I would be more active now that you could, but it really frightened me, and they right. knew where I lived, and they, you know, it was threatening. I'm not saying that it was like, you know, Stephen Harper's people who did it. I'm sure it wasn't, but, uh, but you know, that, that but it notion. But the open waters of the internet. It's sure. the open waters of the internet, and, you know, there are people who, like Mary Beard, who I love, who is on, uh, she teaches at, uh, at Cambridge, and she's on the BBC talking about uh, Roman times. That's her, she's a Roman scholar. And um, people wrote her on the internet and said, you ugly old bag, you know, like, and they said terrible things about her. And one of the things that she wrote about was she said, it isn't, when you're a woman, it isn't what you say, it's that you say anything at all. Mm. And she said, and it has been that way since Ulysses, since Greek times, since our culture, civilization began, when Penelope was upstairs weaving, waiting for Ulysses to come back, and her son was downstairs having a meeting with the villagers, the men from the village, and she came down over the stairs, and he said, get up over the stairs, mother, the men are talking. And she said, and it has ever been thus. Mm -hmm. And she said, people have such a hate on for her because she's an older woman and she's on the BBC. And she's talking about Roman history. Mm -hmm. It's not offensive to anyone. You know what I mean? It's like, and yet, and but interestingly, what she's done, is, and she's done this, and everybody has said, don't do it. And yet, this is what she's done. She's replied to them. Mm. And... She's she said mostly they are people who are desperate and alone and living in their mother's basement. Like one guy was looking after his mother who had been cut off benefits because it's in England, and she reached out to him and he wrote her back and told her what was happening, and she did everything she could to get the mother back on benefits and stuff like that, and she actually befriended them and helped this situation, mm. right? And he had called her every kind of old whore you could, you know, and her mm -hmm. t teeth and her, talked about her sexual organs and, you know, threatened to rape her and, you know, for talking about Roman history, you know. Uh, so, but but she did that and I thought that was an immensely brave. I don't know if that's, you know, that's what she advises people to do when they get that kind of hate response, that ugly, when women get that kind of ugly hate response on, on, uh, on the interweb, on mm. the interweb, the, the, the worldwide interweb. Uh, but I, I haven't done that, and, and I haven't noticed that I've, and I haven't really, I have never gone back on in quite that way again, you know right. what I mean? I was going to ask about yeah. how that played out for you. Because, well, with I mean, me, I just backed off. I was terrified. Yeah, yeah. of course. I'm not brave like Mary Baird. <laughs> but I mean, I think that's an, it had, there's a beauty in that story, but the challenge is, I mean, you know, the yeah. overwhelming numbers. It's not that this was a single encounter. That, no. that played out positively in the end because she was a very graceful person. Yeah, there's like there's 
there's an unknown number of people piling on. You can't you can't possibly resolve them all. And that men way. don't want women on talking about anything for some reason. I don't know why. And and certainly we've 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 felt the you know, like a, we felt that pressure, we felt that hatred, we felt that anger. It's like yesterday I was at the Women's Festival and we were doing a panel and uh, we are talking about women directors, right, and the difficulty of that. And then somebody in the audience said, well, on, um, you know, it's hard to get a job, um, on... Um, uh, my crazy girlfriend. Now they're letting, they're taking, they're doing two women. Two women can direct. I'm going like, oh my god! First of all, two women to do a show with girl in the thing, you know. And like it has been my experience growing up, uh, and I don't say that this is everybody's experience, but that it would take five guys to do one woman's job mostly, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, I mean, t t you know, like I went, remember going to Shiji and when the overflights were happening and everybody in the media was interviewing all the, they were interviewing the chief and stuff like that. But the people who were doing all the work were Elizabeth Panashway and her sister, Mrs. Andrews. They were organizing it all. They were keeping everything going. And so much in Outport, Newfoundland, you notice that it is the women who are doing most of the work. And when I went to Africa, to Ethiopia, like the women, Women, uh, that we met with were saying, is there a way that our girls could go to school in the nighttime? Mm -hmm. Because we cannot let them go in the day because otherwise we'll all die because it's the women and the girls who are doing all the work. And, and, and if they are going to school, what are we going to do? And so it, that has been my experience. So the thought that you would have to need two women to do one guy's right. job right. seemed totally ludicrous to me. And yet we've bought it because it's been... The message, hasn't it? Right. I mean, it has been the profound message. Shut up, sit down. Right from get up over those stairs, mother, the men are talking, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and so it takes, a, you know, it takes a lot of uh, gumption. Um, and, and, and I didn't have it that at, to keep going, though I had great plans to keep going. I became afraid, you know? I just became afraid, and I was afraid for my family, and uh, I just was afraid. Well, <laughs> I'm a kind of fearful person anyway, so. But I don't think anybody, uh, anybody can receive that sort of vitriol and not be affected by it. Yeah. I, mean, I think that the people who uh, maybe you learn to deal with it, not that you should, but I mean, like, that's probably the best case scenario because no one can be, no one can just read something directed at you like that and not be affected. And right. so this, I think, is the challenge is like what you're saying it sounds like um, it's the amplification of the real world on the internet, like maybe beliefs yeah. about you know women being able to work in film or whatever. Yes. And then you've got the internet that amplifies that. At the same time, though, and what I about wonder... all those guys who went after those women who just made up games? And remember, they they oh, yeah. posted their names and their numbers and their addresses, yeah. and people went to their houses and you know wrote. See you next Tuesday, which is everybody's favorite thing. Well, uh, and this plays directly into to what I'm going to ask you is that does, you know, how much of the internet bleeds then into real life? Like for you, are you able to, that happened to you? Yeah. Are you, and of course you're saying, in, in your case, there were people saying like, I know where you live and stuff. Are you, But are you able to essentially now, do you feel like you can ignore the internet and go about your life? Like how much does that affect the day-to-day -day of Mary Walsh? You know, being on actually doing um, the face posting Facebook things and stuff like that, 
uh, by myself. Uh, I stopped doing that. But I'm still, you know, and I still travel around the country and stuff like that. And I, and it, the funny thing was, I was in Edmonton, and there was a bombing. Nobody's heard about this, but I was playing right across from the library, and the cops came in. I was doing my one-woman show. It was going pretty well. I was feeling happy, and uh, and all of a sudden there were people standing up and stuff like that. And I was thinking, oh my God, I thought this was going well, but of course it is Alberta. And uh, but but and but it was the police. They were emptying the thing, and uh, somebody had planted. Somebody had blown up a car across the street in the library, and then there were other bombs, incendiary devices, other places, so everyone had to leave the area, and they closed it down for a week because they couldn't find all the things. And they didn't talk about it, which I think is good. In Canada, we don't, you know, we don't, it's like, in America, it seems like when those things happen, they're blown up and talked about, and then the people who feel like that's the kind of attention I want to get, they go for it. Whereas this was like treated like, okay, you know, just there was a little bit of coverage. But anyway, somebody came to interview me, and they said, do you think it had anything to do <laughs> with like what you were talking about? Because, you know, I do political stuff in the show, and, you know, mm -hmm. and I just laughed so hard because, no, I mean, obviously... It had to do with Buddy and his girlfriend. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Obvi that's what it turned out to be. But it was such a uh, ridiculous thing for me to think that somebody would be that upset that because, of course, I'm doing, you know, I'm, most of the political stuff I did about Edmonton was done as uh, Mrs. Uh, Eulalia coming in from the back of the audience and talking to people and touching them on the hand, you know, saying the odd incendiary thing but nothing <laughs> right, right. nothing worthy of a bomb for Christ's sakes but uh, but yeah no I was really proud of uh, of us in a way that we don't uh, glorify and I don't think that the Americans are trying to glorify it but that it you know it's on the all day news whereas that People at home, I mean, my husband Don's here. Don didn't even hear about it until I told him that we, you know, the theater had mm -hmm. been emptied that night and, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. But anyway, yes, I haven't, mostly it hasn't. It doesn't is what my answer is. Right. It doesn't make a difference. It made a difference then. Mm -hmm. And mostly now I try to, it's like people say, you know, in America, people who are on TV and stuff, they, they seem to have a difficult time with uh, people coming up to them and asking them for their autograph or to get their picture taken. And people say, oh my God, do you mind that? And I go, no, because it's always people who say, oh, oh, I love you or my mom loves you. You know, you are 90. How can your mom have it? Anyway, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, and it's always like you always feel like, oh, my gosh. And so now, like the things that get on the Internet about stuff, mostly it's about, oh, that's really great or we love that or we had a great time at the show. And, you know, and, and then there's the odd thing like you are an old whore. I don't know why because I have a different political view, how mm -hmm. that makes me, uh, I mean, old, yes, mm -hmm. and ugly, maybe. Yeah. But whore, no. Uh, but uh, <laughs> never to this date, you know, I don't know what might happen in the future, but <laughs> that hasn't been my line of work. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, an, it's an old and, and, uh, and, you know, profession, but that's not my profession, uh, right. you know. Right. Old, ugly satirist, they might say, you know. 
sure. Right. But uh, at least get but the facts with women, straight. you know, um, you know, and then the rape threats and stuff like that is really like, you know, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. So our, you know, we are always leading with our sexuality in some way, uh, even when we don't want to, mm-hmm. when we're not trying to in any way. It seems to be front and center, mm-hmm. and uh, and so that's the other thing about being an older woman is you. Uh, you you are comfortable in no longer being the object of somebody else's desire, but finally becoming the subject of your own life, right? And it's quite, yeah, Tied it's quite, uh, I yeah. know, I love that. Yeah. 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 Uh, Mary, I don't know if you heard, but there's an election coming up. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, just, just, you know, off the cuff. Any thoughts? I'm really worried, of course, you know, the way we always are. I'm really worried that Andrew Scheer and and that crowd will get in, you know, because uh, the eight years that we had Mr. Harper in were difficult years for many of us. I mean, at the end, they were, they were starting a... Uh, uh, a group, um, a phone line, uh, where yeah. you could phone in uh, for people who had uh, bizarre cultural practices. Would that be like boiling blueberry duff? I mean, what is a bizarre cultural practice? <laughs> who would have been turned in? You know what I mean? Um, it, it like that. They're 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 a they're a rigid crowd. I always hope that the liberals will get in in a minority government and that the NDP will get in uh, in opposition because then the NDP will force the liberals to, you know, the liberals are just, they're the party that govern from the center. And if the right has the opposition, then they'll, because that's what the people want, obviously. Mm-hmm. That's that's how the system works. If more people vote in the right, then the liberals will go, well, we'll go more right. And of course, they're all, you know, a little bit right anyway, aren't they? But 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 always, like when we've had, you know, the NDP in opposition or we've had a strong left thing, we got Medicare, we got uh, social, uh, you know, uh, what, 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 what am I on? Old age pensions. Uh, you know, all social security, all those things that uh, that really just make it possible for us to live some kind of a life, right? And uh, and so the, I think the liberals really do need to be pushed, uh, you know, that way. But they're not going to be pushed that way if Mr. Scheer is in opposition, and they're not, and we are not going to be that kind of country if Mr. Scheer is the uh, mm. prime minister, right? I've wondered if we need another. He's an American. For God's sake. And then he goes, I never, oh, nobody asked me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, right, you know. Anyway, but like I, I thought when, uh, you know, I think what really made a difference why Jugmeat got, uh, uh, got so popular was because he answered so honestly and so non-politically when they asked him about uh, Trudeau's blackface thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I phoned the people at this hour, 22 minutes, and I said, you know, that thing about blackface I mean, I'm not saying that we were we were ignorant for sure, but like Kathy did um, did Joe Crow until 2010, mm. and uh, you know Kathy and Rick used to do uh, Mr. and Mrs. Adid, uh, who were Newfoundland Arabs, but they wore you know blackface, and uh, and you know in Codco, you know Andy did uh, you know I mean it was just like is it like. I would do an Irish leprechaun and we would feel like Kathy would do like somebody from Jamaica, a woman from Jamaica, because she wanted to get that woman's point of view across and it never occurred to us 
that it was wrong. I mean, we definitely, nobody would do it now, but I feel like, you know, Justin Trudeau is a, he's a, he's a, a drama teacher. He's a, mm -hmm. an actor. And so he would be in the same place that we would be but this, ignorant, this, but not racist. This ties back to the question about comedy in the internet age, yeah. I think, because you're talking about how you used to say the word retarded. Yeah. And though you don't say it now yeah. because of the internet, someone can find Mary Walsh saying retarded right. from many years ago. Yes. So the idea of comedy, you 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 may have you know evolved or whatever term you want to use for that, Yeah. but the internet remembers that once you said this, it, when it was a completely different time. Right. So... What do we do? Well, I don't think we do anything. I mean, it's, it's a true. I did do it. It's there. You know what I mean? He did wear blackface. Uh, you know, uh, Greg played um, uh, Moham, uh, um, Gandhi. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That's true. That's the truth. Um, there's nothing to do about it. It's just to say that's where we were then. Uh, we also stole all the land from the indigenous people. It's like we can't keep pretending we didn't, and then we signed treaties that we never intended to keep. But it's like it's like uh, the fourth step in 12-step. You know, you made a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself, and then instead of pretending that you're someone else, you go, you, you cop to, yes, mm -hmm. uh, that's me, mm -hmm. and but I intend to do better mm -hmm. in the future. Instead of spending all your energy pretending that that never was you, that you never did, like us as Canadians, we're always, like we are always like, we don't come to terms with what we did or who we were we always pretend that we're the hail fellow well met that we're the good guys that it's the guys in the south i think the more we admit that we made mistakes that yes we did the wrong thing what can you know but we're not going to continue instead of spending all our energy pretending we're something that we're not mm -hmm. like pretending we went to brooklyn for the summer <laughs> Those were ahead of your times, yes, weren't they? When yeah, that was yeah, the yeah, worst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we, we, we just have to admit, because we're human beings, right? And we make mistakes. And we often want what we want when we want it. And we will often go to terrible lengths in order to get it. Mm -hmm. and, and yet, the more we recognize that, the harder it will be for us to keep doing it, right? Mm -hmm. I, that's what I think, anyway. Totally. Um, we're getting... We're getting towards the end. Okay. <laughs> a few more easy questions for you. Um, what happens when you die? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm happy enough. I'm happy enough to, uh, you know, to, to uh, just become part of the, you know, just rot into the earth. And I don't mean to interrupt, but I heard someone gasp, and that made me laugh a little bit. So like, <gasps> Mary's going to tell us. Okay, go oh, ahead. No, I'm happy enough to just become part of the universe in the way that we all are part of the universe. And, you know, I, uh, you know, I don't necessarily believe that there's life after death, but there is life after death because we're all energy and energy is never dead, right? So we just go on in some other way. You know, I become that tree or something, you know, <laughs> I guess. Totally. So, and I feel fine about that. Uh, I don't want it to happen right now. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm trying to put it off as long as I can. But it seems like a pretty decent, um, you know, way to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, what's the hardest time you've ever laughed? Oh, my gosh. Oh, there's so many times. Because, you know, even though CODCO was a very difficult group, and even though when we started, this hour is 22 minutes, was terribly... <gasps> 
anxiety ridden because you know you don't have a show but we laughed so much like uh you know we would just laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh at, at different times so i guess with them and uh now um sometimes when i hang out with amy house and uh um oh my god i can't remember amy's and and uh God, I can't remember. Anyway, but just, there's just, it's so good to just be able to hang out with people who are funny and you just um, keep going in the most outrageous ways. And uh, I don't think there, I can name a time, the hardest time I ever laughed. That's good. That's yeah, a good yeah, problem yeah. to have, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, what do you think the biggest challenge is facing Newfoundland right now? Wow. You know, uh, I think it's so funny, you know, we're such an empty country. We're huge. There's nothing in the middle almost at all. I know Grand Falls and Cornerbrook are there. They'd probably be a little pissed off. Uh, but, uh, you know, mostly we're around the edges. And I find it so outrageous that I go on, uh, I go online and I see Newfoundlanders complaining about immigrants. We should be so goddamn lucky to get some immigrants. It's only us, the Murphys and the, you know. <laughs> Like, I would, but you know, it would be so great. I mean, remember when the the um, the Bulgarians came? None of them stayed. But imagine if we had those two thousand, because we got that great restaurant, we got a a foundry, we got a, an international a bronze, uh, you know, a caster person, a sculptor, I guess you'd call him. Uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, that was, you know, like, you know, always like. Uh, you know, we want to get a, a, a genetic pool a little larger than a pudding bowl, I think. And, uh, you know, um, and so, yeah, it's fi- it seems fine. You know, I love Newfoundland, and there's nothing about Newfoundland that seems wrong to me. I don't know that I knew when I was growing up how extraordinary it was and how lucky I was to be here. But when I did Hatching, Matching, and Dispatching, the first one, People in Newfoundland were really upset because they thought it was insulting Newfoundland. I remember thinking, oh, my God, you know, I'm not going to stay. I'm, I'm getting out of here. I hate. And then I remembered that Newfoundland has given me everything that I have, and it has loved me, and I have loved – it has given me something to love. You know, back in the 19th century, people felt this way that Newfoundlanders feel about Newfoundland, about their countries, like, breeze there a man with soul so dead who never to himself has said, this is my home, my native land. We get that. We – feel that way about Newfoundland. We love Newfoundland. We're given an opportunity to open our hearts wider, to have something else to love. We love this land. And I had no idea about the beauty of Newfoundland until I'd gone other places. And really, the world is beautiful. I mean, I'm not saying we're... But the particular beauty of Newfoundland speaks particularly to my heart. And and the way that Newfoundlanders are the way we are, I love that because that's the way I am. And so I feel, you know, but I could, I, I would, I would like other, you know, like, uh, I think we should open ourselves up to more people to become part of this loving relationship we have with this beautiful land. Does that sound sucky? Yeah. <laughs> It does. It doesn't sound very Newfoundland. I should say something sarcastic now. <laughs> I think we did it, Mary. Okay. Is this okay? Yes. This, was this all yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. What's, how long did we go? I don't know. Hours, but it's been good. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's yeah, good. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Thank you, Mary, for doing this. Today. And are we going to ask people if they want to ask questions? We are, but but first, I want to just say, uh, let's give it up for Mary Walsh. Oh, thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so we are going to. Oh, okay. Sure, down here. Hi, Mary. Hi. <laughs> oh. Whose idea was it to start the cross dressing? in uh, 22 minutes. Oh, now in, in Codco, of course, Kathy and myself and Diane always, uh, well, actually, Diane wasn't there by the time we got to TV, but the boys were always cross-dressing because Tommy loved to wear a dress and looked so good in a dress, too, that Kathy and I were often in despair by the end of the makeup thing as Tommy looked much better than, than us. And... Uh, but we had been doing men for a long time. You know, that was just the way that we were. And so um, we just took it with us into, uh, into 22 minutes, right? But we didn't, the guys in 22 minutes weren't uh, uh, Rick and Greg and uh, now Mark. And uh, I don't think that they ever had the interest that the Codco guys had in, in uh, you know, cross-dressing. Whereas we remained interested in being fellas. <laughs> You certainly made good fellows. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, Mary. How are you? Good, good. I love the day. It was excellent. Oh, thank you. I have to ask you, when you look back on your life, is there anything besides being a journalist you want and you wish you had it done that you didn't get the opportunity or you didn't see that you could? I know you sort of touched on that today, but is there anything really deep down inside that you've always wanted to do and you can still possibly get it done? Well, you know, write that book, so that's good. So that was a big thing. All that time, I guess I felt like I'm never going to get that done. I'm going to be one of those. And when I turned about 62, I think that that's when I, plus I couldn't get any work, uh, which is often good. Uh, but then I thought, like, I'm going to be one of those people who dies having not done the one thing I always wanted to do. Now, I want to do the second the second book because apparently you can't be a novel. Everybody has one book in them, so you got to write five, four or five. So I still have to write four or five books. So, I, you know, and I, I'm kind of busy. Uh, but, um, you know, I would have been a gentler, kinder person if I could have been a gentler kind of person, um, yeah, that's what I would have been. I would. That's what I, I, you know because, uh, yeah, like I, you know, people are so good, and uh, I was always afraid of people, and uh, you know, I often came out swinging, and uh, you know, but you can only be, you can only do what you know. That's all you can do. And I'm just grateful that I got a, 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 and sometimes I'm not gentle and kind now either. I have to remind myself. But I'm just grateful that I got a chance to get old and to have gotten so much help from so many people. Like my husband is here. And, uh, you know, I, I would work myself to death, really. Even on holiday, I would think, uh, okay, now, they've got those uh, boats. We better take those out. We'll get those at 8 8.15, you know what I mean? And I would think that that's, in order to enjoy your holiday, you had to do everything. And I remember going on my first uh, holiday with my husband, and I remember going, okay, let's go out in the uh, in the kayaks, and, and Don saying, let's just lie here 
and read first, and then we'll see about that this afternoon. And this afternoon never came, and I learned how to have a holiday, which was huge for me because I didn't know. And so I've learned, you know, like all the people that, um, uh, all the people that you're blessed with uh, being put in your life, the good and the bad, uh, you learn, you know, you get to learn, and uh, kind and gentle, and uh, yeah, that's, you know, I'm still on that, yeah. I just wanted to say I've always loved your work. Thank you. And I've always, and it's lovely that you're so honest. You're such an honest person. Thank you. Thank you. What a softball question. <laughs> Except for about Brooklyn and, you know, writing to the Pope and stuff like that. <laughs> I grew into it, I guess. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Um, so my question for you is, you talked about not being able to finish that novel before. And when was that inspiration that you said to yourself, okay, I can actually do this. I'm going to give it a shot. Like I said, I had that thing when I was about 62 and I thought, and I accepted it, that I was going to be one of those people who died having never done the one thing that I wanted to do. And my agent, I got a writing agent who said to me, and I said, Perry, would you be my acting agent? Because I wasn't getting any acting work. And he said, no, I can't be your acting agent because I already have a lot of ladies who never go out. And I thought, what is that? And he meant who never go out on an audition, who don't get any, you know what I mean? That was devastating. So I think it was, I had that 200 pages that I'd written around the thing. So I sent it to Perry, you know, because uh, I thought, well, my life as an actress and comedian is over. So I got this other thing that I always wanted to do. I, here's an opportunity. I might as well do it. Though I was devastated. It's interesting, isn't it? Because that is how it goes all the time, you notice. You think, oh, my God, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me. Buddy left me. And I'll never, and I'll probably never get him back. And turns out that's the best thing that ever happened to you because you were forced to pursue this other thing, which is what you always want. You know what I'm saying? And so the the reason I did it was because I was in despair about my career and that I would ever get another job or that I would ever get any other job more in comedy. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> All the bad things turn out to be good things. Not always. Not always, of course. But a lot. A lot of things that you go, oh, my God, this is awful. This is the worst thing that ever happened to me. How am I going to get back what I just lost? I just lost that. And, and then it turns out that, you know, other doors, you know, you for I'm not sure that God actually opens the door, but you're forced to, you know, because there's no air in the room, to open a window, and then you, and then it's like, oh my God, yeah, mm. yeah, totally. Just curious, what makes you happy? What makes you laugh now? Uh, I was just in, uh, I was just in Iqaluit, and uh, some young uh, Inuit women uh, were doing an open mic night, and. Um, the last woman who got up said, you know, I'm half white and half Inuit. And she said, and the uh, <laughs> the Inuit side of me thought, 
oh, I better wait until the white people are finished talking. And the white part of me said, oh, fuck it, they'll never shut up. (laughs) It was so funny and so true. So I think that it's still that same thing. It's like the the truth really makes me laugh when I'm not, you know what I mean? That's what, it's like, that's what a... That's what comedy is, really, isn't it? It's like telling the truth. And so, like, when I'm trying to write a sketch, I always, what I, the process is, I write down what I want to say, then I try to write down what I want to say in a funny way, then I try to write down what I want to say in a um, short way. <laughs> and, and, you know, and then, yeah, because the truth is what, it, what we're always trying to get at in some way, isn't it? And it's hard. It's hard because you don't know what the truth. Who knows what the truth is, right? But that young woman, that was the truth. <laughs> I always loved the Kurt Vonnegut quote that he says, the truth is powerful, it's unexpected. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Any other questions? Okay. All well, right. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much. And thanks to the rooms for having us in this beautiful theater, eh? Let's give them a round of applause. Them. And a round of applause for Mary Walsh. Thank you. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you, guys. Thank you. (laughs) All right. That's the end of my conversation with Mary Walsh. Isn't she such a cool and interesting personality and so open? I just felt so engaged the entire time talking to her. I hope you were engaged as you listened. I want to say a thanks to my friend Heather Elliott, who helped make the connection with The Rooms, The Rooms for putting off the event, and Scott Hammond for helping with sound, to make it sound so good. Thank you all for listening, for those who came to the podcast, and for those of you who are listening now for the first time. This was such a cool way to end season one of If and When, and I can't wait to come back for part two. We'll see you all again soon.